Welcome to A Pint with Shawnee B. I'm coming to you on Ireland's... I think we're having our summer today, Annie. We're, it's the sunniest day we've had of the year so far. Mm-hmm. And I'm welcoming an esteemed guest to our country who's over for a major exhibition. She'll tell us about that in a second. Her name is Annie Freud. Hello. Hello. Those of you who don't know of Annie, she is a, a, a poet, a very famous poet, who's in the middle of writing her fourth collection. And she, why are you in Dublin? I'm in Dublin to celebrate the opening of a show of Lucian Freud, my father, and Jack Yates. Okay, two of the most famous IMM. painters of the 20th yes, century. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, she is Lucian Freud's uh, father, but we, I want to talk to you first, though, not about your family, because I think everyone yeah. wants to talk about yeah, your family, yeah. about your poetry. Yes. Because you came late to the party. Yes, that's true. That's <laughs> and I love true. that because I'm yes. coming late to the yes. party. Yes, You were made actually one of the poets to watch or something or the emerging poets of Britain when you were in your, I'm not going to reveal your age, but when you were in your 60s, is that right? Yes, that's right. That's what right. was it like to finally scale the mountain at that, you know? God, it, well, I suppose a really big moment for me was uh, waking up one morning and walking into Waterstones and seeing a stack of the book I'd published. Wow. It was killer. I'd love that. <laughs> it was killer. It was uh, like an incredible rush of vanity. Mm-hmm. It's an uh, ego stroke, yeah. It was like suddenly I was Omo, you know, all sort of like Hel- Hellman's mayonnaise. Yes. I just shook. You were a product. Yeah, I shook. I trembled. It was fantastic. Weird. And then owning copies of it and, you signing know... Signing them. Signing them and making them dirtier and dirtier. I mean, you know, just sort of in terms of you know, endless scribbles and pages yeah. falling out. You know, there are lots of poets that I know, that I, I watch and listen to, who say things like, oh, I never read from my first collection. I read from my first collection all the time. Brilliant. I love all my poems. Exactly. They're your babies. Yeah, yeah, I the do. The best... Man, there ever was. There ever with was. a big snake on the cover. Yeah. Who was the best man that ever was that you're referring to? Well, he's like a character in a poem that I wrote. For a very long time, my mentor was John Stammers, a deeply distinguished poet and deeply esteemed friend. He helped me get my first collection out. Uh, he would, you know, help me kind of, he would say, rewrite that, rewrite yeah. that. So we were out for lunch one day down in the Vietnamese quarter near the Jeffrey Museum, where I lived near there at the time. We were talking about sort of like high-risk subjects that you could kind of like grab mm-hmm. out of sort of greed and excitement. Mm-hmm. And I was crossing the road and I said, like a love poem to Hitler, And he looked at me and he said, if you don't write that poem, I'm never speaking to you again. (laughs) And so I wrote The Best Man That Ever Was. I'm going to not express opinion about the subject of the poem because that's not the point. Mm. The point is, what excited me was, at one time in my life, I discovered the uh, pseudomasochistic novel, Histoire d'Or, by uh, Anne de Clos. I find it very moving and, of course, very shocking and I wondered what it was kind of like to be somebody that produced something so unbelievably shocking. Yeah. I had an ambition to do something like that myself. Are you fascinated by evil? Um, well, there's a line in Killing Eve that just love, which is, is it difficult to be a bad person? Not if you practice. <laughs> so 
Um, a lot of your poems that I found, I, mean, I haven't read all of them by yeah. any means, I would say, but a lot of the poems that I did find and fall upon when I was doing some research on you have this peculiar interest to me, and I may, I may have this all wrong, in the things that are meant to be beautiful but aren't, or the things that we're supposed to do but don't, or procrastination, or... That procrastination. Kind of... See, talk to me about being a, like a latecomer to mm. being published and... I always made art. My occupation as a child was painting and drawing, really. Mm-hmm. I was terrified by physical risk and physical act. Well, you know, like skipping, yeah, <laughs> and, and acting. But, not you know, sport. Not sport. I was, if there was netball going to happen, not only was I the last person to be chosen, because you know, I, I was so... I just couldn't concentrate. I didn't understand. Yeah. I used to have tennis lessons. I'm quite good at table tennis, though, because it's a small focus and you can sort of, like, express your vicious aspect of your nature when you do a smash, you know. Just this this thing, like, I I like the poem about the rose, for example. Your rose doesn't grow the way they grow and you can't get your stuff done the way other poets can do. And I'm beautiful, but I'm not beautiful. And there's all this this stuff going on, which is... is I love that poem. Yeah, it's a beautiful example of the, the human quest for even me in advertising trying to tell yeah. people to look beautiful and look at these people that it's never really like that is it yeah well how that poem came about was mm. i live near bridgeport it's very kind of like the remnants of a kind of hippie culture that's all gone capitalist yeah. you know yeah. the little shops selling kind of um recycled vests and coverlets and ancient saucepans sold yes. as precious artifacts so it's in where is it dorset Dorset on yeah, the coast, yeah. near the coast. Near the coast. It still has proper greengrocers. Mm. Um, With bags and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was there and there were these marvellous roses right. standing in a vase. Why don't you read that one? So I will, people, I will. People can, oh, uh, yeah, I love that. People can uh, yeah, yeah. at least know what we're talking about. So this is from The Remains, right? Yeah. <laughs> My roses... My roses do not grow like the ones in the catalogue. See how this one cringes against the fence, like an abandoned woman, bitter at having once loved. But it was always like this, and I should have known that the voluptuary in me would always remain partly theoretical. What does the, what does the last line mean there? Um... You know, I would have never... And I never took heroin. I never took cocaine. Yeah. It's kind of... Um, I find it difficult to say in some way. Say, no, no but I'm sort of... Because um, it's also beautiful. Well, right? it's, like, it's like, you know, you're at a party and you're there on your own and you find yourself dancing and unfortunately it turns out to be a man wearing a cummerbund and by some awful fluke, he French kisses you, and you think, I'm so not up for this. <laughs> I hate to be hit on. Yeah. Why do you hate to be hit on? I, it makes me feel like I'm... It's, you know, not what Brigitte Bardot. I like attraction. It's always fantastic when it... But I hate to be hit on. I just find it violating. Well, I think I think a lot of women would agree with you. I yeah, mean, yeah. Quite a lot of men, I hate to be, you know? And men hate to be hit on, too. Yeah. It makes me feel like a girl. I'm not that. I'm, just, I'm a person. Yeah. I, I can't bear a male kind of room. I think that's going... It's not as prevalent as it used to be, though. There's a, there's a less acceptance from men to men to, a, to to see men doing, you know, that kind of 
predator thing to a woman or trying yeah. to, you know, get her. I don't think it's as allowed as it was or accepted as it was across the board, which I think is a good yeah, thing. Yeah, and I also think yeah. women are stronger in their ability to call it out or to yeah. report it or to say, I'm not happy. For me, it's not a political choice. It's almost like I'm a, I'm a mollusk. If some guy sort of does that kind of, I go... Whoosh. Yeah, hedgehog. Well, um, mollusk. Mollusk, limpet. <laughs> <laughs> so how, so the, 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 uh, one of the things, just to stick on the fact that you, you arrived late... Was anything of this to do with the fact that you are from such a prolific family that you were somehow worried that you wouldn't match some of the dizzy heights people like your father? Like oh, inevitably, inevitably. Yeah. I mean, when I was young, I, you know, I used to go to the socialist post-socialist society meetings, and I didn't feel capable of taking part in the discussions. I didn't quite understand what was the hard line. And I used to just embroider because I had sympathy and great fondness for all those people. But I didn't really understand. I didn't feel I had a, a language currency to participate. But I was there and I was with these people and they mattered to me a lot. And what they were talking about mattered to me. But uh, it was not my... Pr- I didn't have a political practice because I didn't come from a background where social questions were discussed in any way mm-hmm. apart from, <laughs> you know sort of ballroom dancing version of social questions, right, right. if you like. But I always painted, I drew, I made posters, I embroidered, I wrote poems, I wrote short stories. We were isolated. No, no, I wasn't isolated. Um, I, my, I, my mother, I mean, I had a lot of different talents, if you like. Mm. I was an actor for a while. And my mother, who also was hugely talented... She was a very private person, mm-hmm. not really social. And I think had I kind of put myself forward in the way that, like my father wanted me to mm. be, uh, the criticism from her would have been too difficult. But I also took a hell of a long time growing up. The first time mm. I felt I was truly an adult was at 44. Really? Yeah. And what it happened was, that made that happen? Made you feel like an adult? I was in psychoanalysis, right. and I told a dream in which there were symbolic representations of my mother and my father. And suddenly, I jumped to my feet. I said, "I'm an adult. I'm an adult. Yeah. I'm an adult." And although not, not everything, you know, fell neatly and comfortably into place, somehow uh, I could never go back to feeling that I was a little child ever again. Right. Ever again. Did you feel, Did you? were you the sort of woman, girl, when you were growing up that was always, that was, would get scared of things? Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, I went on stage, I yeah. exhibited, mm. I... You went to school first in France, right? You, was that, no, 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 I went to the French Lycée. Lycée, okay, yeah, sorry. Yeah, in, in South Kensington. Oh, what, oh, sorry, okay, okay. Yeah. And so you, that's where you learned your French. Yes, uh, you're yes. You French, and you're actually translating poetry. Yes, right? and I lived in France. I had an early marriage. Ah, uh-huh, okay, okay. Yeah. So around that time, so we're talking now the sort of late 50s, early 60s, when we were your formative years? Uh, yeah, I uh, I went to university in 1967. Right, OK. So what was... Paint a picture for me of what life was like for, in you know, in, in England, London, around that time. Well... 
because we have it was B. Yeah, you know, I mean, free it, love. It was all yes, that kind of stuff. Well, one of the things that I found very very difficult, and this is one of the reasons why I'm doing the translating, and I'll come to that in a moment. But one of the very worst things that could be said about you if you were a girl that you were easy. And you were never even sure when you were with the person you were meant to love and who was meant to love you and with whom you were seen as a couple, whether that was not also going on amongst your peers and, and even in his mind. Although there was this sort of atmosphere of sort of sexual freedom, if you like, and um, I was incredibly faithful. The idea of hanging around with other guys was the total anathema. And did you but, find it hard to find a partner that would would mirror that faithfulness? No, it was a private thing. It was, private it was going thing. on with me. It was okay. not something ever right. to be discussed, right. ever, okay. anywhere. Okay. Uh, it was... Um, um, you were romantic. Yes, I guess. <laughs> but also... At a time when... That was all being dismantled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, It wasn't just that. I know it sounds very, very old-fashioned, but when I was very young, I was very concerned to maintain an adherence to a kind of etiquette. And for me, a little bit later, when the punk movement came along, I found it absolutely incomprehensible. I could understand where it came from. A lot of the world. (laughs) I I understand where it came from because the illusions that were maintained about all you need is love and baby, it's not true. Um, And the way the punk movement just sliced that in half and the way young women could appear in uh, like ill-fitting shorts and shaved heads and bother boots yeah. and use uh, words like fucking cunt the whole time mm. and be hostile and angry. And it was a sledgehammer to everything. Yes. And that's why it was so short. Yeah, once yeah. they'd done it... Yeah, yeah. And also, and also <laughs> then it became more romantic because the Pogues was... The yeah. Pogues were so goddamn romantic. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know. Um, Rainy night but, in Soho. And yeah, like but, that. you know, for me, I wasn't... I wasn't a hippie, but I was sort of a liberal, you know. <laughs> Sounds sympathetic. Um, what was exciting, what was exciting was going out at night and finding yourself standing at the roundhouse next to Ginger Baker watching the, what was... Oh, yeah. Hey. Right. Or seeing Jimi Hendrix stagger down the King's Road. <laughs> That was exciting. Was it a nicer time, do you think, than we have now? Or was it... I mean, people talk about the good old days, and I don't think there were good old days, really, were there? I mean, hey, when I was... Maybe a year or two later, I was teaching in a comprehensive school in Felton, near Felton's Young Offenders Institution. The violence in the school was terrifying. Really? So, you know... You're talking. So you would you're talking about all, well, when we're talking at the, that at that culture at that time. We're looking at layers and crusts yeah. and deeper crusts. There's a lot going on, and you know, so that the I mean, the representation of it all being sort of Terence Stamp and Twiggy and um, Mary Quant yeah. and and um, 
Conran and all that, they were the elite design intellectuals, if you like, flaunting their beauty, their mobility, their talent, their mass appeal, their their innate aristocracy. And of course, that was hugely, hugely influential. Mm -hmm. Um, Were you seen as a, you know, child of fame? A bit, a bit. You know, like here and picture well, left to right, what, Annie Freud. Well, you see, I, I kind of just try and avoid cliches so much because it's so damn easy. But I'll tell you, I remember a time when I was at the Lycée. It was a transitional year. Like, it, I was no longer an infant. I wasn't strictly a teenager yet. But I remember you had to stand up and say your full name. Now... I didn't know who Sigmund Freud was. I didn't know who Lucian Freud was. Sigmund Freud was your great-grandfather. Yes, but I knew that my dad was a painter, and that was just... I just took it completely for granted. I never thought about art for a single moment. He was just my father who painted. Uh, You know, you intuit things, and you pick up stuff, like children do, and I wouldn't say my name. I don't know quite what it was. Your surname. My surname. Because I would get reactions that I had no idea what they were about. And I think in front of all my school friends, well, they weren't friends, they were just my my year, I was just not going to... And I got into a lot of trouble. And you changed your name again later in life? Yeah, I did. I did did for a while. Um, I did for a while. It was an error. Like I had my first marriage was a real love marriage, right. but it went wrong. It yeah. went wrong. I had no idea that <laughs> I hadn't sort of like clocked it that in marriage you've got to be nice when things go wrong. Yes. I didn't know that when things go wrong, uh, you couldn't just kind of be nasty back. You know, you had to kind of fix something. The name, but the family. Why do you think the Freuds are just so prolific? Because you are, I mean, we've mentioned too, yourself and your, 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 your dad. And Bella, your Esther, Rose. And, yeah. Bella, Esther, Rose, Susie. And now there's young ones coming along. It's a troubled gene, right? It's a trouble. It's a, it has that great tension inherent in it, doesn't it? I mean, you even go all the way back to, to your great-grandfather. Yeah. So there's a, there's yeah. a kind of a madness and a, and a, yeah, and a, and a creativity so. and a, a fearlessness and a... My way or the highway about you know, there? There's yeah, a, there's there is. There is. Uh, yeah, it's all the way yeah, through. It's yeah, better yeah. than the Kennedys. Yeah, yeah. Let me show you what I'm wearing tonight. <laughs> I've never had a Bella Freud dress. Ah, that's lovely. So that's your niece? No, no, no. She's a sister. Oh, your sister. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Same with dad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bella, yeah. Also painted. Yeah, many, many times. Yeah. So, but it it did, uh, uh, it was a burden. Is there a burden of expectation? Yes. Why can't you be as clever as your dad? I'll tell you what. I had a child. I was on my own, on and off, but mostly on my own for a good long time. And I had to earn my living. I'd been a teacher. I was unfit for it. I didn't have the, you know, teachers have to have so much ballast. You have to stand on strong ground. You have to establish a collegial, mutual engagement and sympathy. And I never was there long enough to get that, but I also didn't know about it. 
you know, you're on your own in these classrooms. They're looking for weakness. Yeah, they're looking, and they're looking for, they're looking for, the you know, if you haven't shaved the back of your leg, yeah. as you, and often hasn't, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> the boys will say, shave your fucking legs. Unbelievable. Terrible. And then you're up there trying to kind of, Anyway, so uh, anyway, I I I would join a job. Um, I worked for four years for Heinemann Educational Books. Uh, late seventies, early eighties. It was a safe, boring job in a company where you know publishing at that time ran on alcohol. Somebody somebody got yeah. pregnant. Open the Chardonnay. <laughs> somebody got engaged. Open the Chardonnay. Advertising um, was like that then. Uh, and uh, we had drinks parties all the yeah. time. And it was hugely social. You got taken away once a year to this horrific place on some hillside and made to walk for miles <laughs> and then got groped and poured by the editors. And uh. But it was just near Soho. And I used to go out and buy beautiful food for me and my daughter, yeah. uh, really specialist things. And I was... I am and was always a great cook and fascinated by food. A lot of food in your poetry. A lot of food in my poetry. And I had lots of friends nearby. Like, I had a friend who, I'm so sad, he died recently, uh, Stan Brennan, who's also in my... He was was the manager of the Nipple Erectors, who were the first name of the Pogues. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Pope Mahone was the second. Yes, and yes. And that was banned, so yes. that kiss my ass. Yes, yes, yes. Anyway, he had a he had a record store mm-hmm. called Vinyl Solution in Hanway Passage. Right. Uh, <laughs> and it was a creepy name, but... Um, and we used to we used to go out drinking, and Soho was round the corner, and there were these shops where they made mass-produced clothes, and you could pick up designer silks for like a few pounds have you got a poem from around that time yes that can capture you yeah, know what's yeah. going on in your mind right now because yeah it's, it's, yeah uh, I totally have this I mean this is a procrastination poem par excellence <laughs> in fact I have two okay let's read two okay I'll start with this one a voids officer achieves the tree pose At times it seems that what she really ought to be doing with her life is for the ether to decide. She'll make a film about an early time before thought or cloth or pity or desire when all was flabby, all obscure, half-baked until the moment when a silkworm sank its jaws into the fibres of a mulberry leaf. As a delaying tactic, she bangs another Frenchman. They meet in a bar so crowded that after shouting for half an hour at one another, they take a taxi to his place. She has had to repress her dismay at his jacket, and when at last it's off and she touches him, she recalls the final parting with her therapist. Someone who'd wear that shade of lipstick must lack the judgment to unmask her ruse. This is a life lived in a lunch break, when your desires have been pushed away, and the corporation's discourse is about as interesting to you as the microbiology of the ant. That's when some new word or thought suggests a whole new set of possibilities, and standing on one leg in prayer, she knows her real deficiencies have yet to flower.
Excellent. That was one of the your breakthrough. Yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, that was the yeah. before the yeah because I got published by Donut. That's right. Do you know That's Andy right. Ching? Yeah, I don't know. No. Oh, the Ching, the Ching. <laughs> What was it like to, because that's an amazing, I mean, that that's a real, you call it a procrastination, but I call it very grown-up poetry. Like, that's a, that's a proper poem, right? Yeah. Well, you know, those boots were made for walking. Yeah. I, when I teach my students, I tell them, this is a poem that's got to walk out into the world, mm. but you've got to give it, in order for it to do that, its feet do have to be on the ground. Mm. There mustn't be the slightest doubt whether the window was open or closed at the time of the shooting. Um, yeah, there's a great confidence in there. Yeah, I know. And it, it's actually, a, it, it's a single, it's a, not a, I'm not saying it's, it's necessarily autobiographical, but it's a single woman's confidence, I can feel. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Let's yes. do the other one. Okay, all right. Now, this takes place, I'll give you a little bit of background okay. here. This takes place in France in 1973, and it's about my first husband before we were married. And in that part of France, there was a custom among courting couples, of going out in the early evening with a plastic bag. It doesn't sound as terrifying as you think it's going to be. <laughs> and they would pick uh, Escargot de Bourgogne oh, from yeah. the fields. And then you come home and you do unspeakable things to these poor creatures yeah. so that they void all their filthy room. And then you cook them and you stuff them and you put garlic on them and you've got Escargot de Bourgogne. Anyway, we did that. But when we got back to the flat, I couldn't be bothered. And they crawled all over the ceiling to my horror of my future mother-in-law. Okay. 1973. The women wore their scarves so tightly wound around their necks you'd think the occupation had returned. Their calves in putty-coloured hose trod the pavements of the town strewn with dry, mysterious turds. An advert in the paper brought us to a door studded with nails There was no bell to ring, just a dot inside a circle, and this phrase, la sonnerie du pauvre imaginatif. We found the 2CV just where we left it, slumped in some moribund faubourg, whose corners never seemed to reach a turn, and where old men raised hats in salutation to the statue of an old buffoon. We went to the cinema twice a day. We cooked our omelettes in the boot. We laughed until the money disappeared and military service got you by the heels. One year later, there we were again together, convalescent on a summer's evening, snail gathering at the edges of the fields. Very, very nice. Very nice. Now, to go back to the cultural thing, Mm -hmm. France... In the 70s, we've got Giscard d'Escaing on the throne. Yes. 68, let the fuck all. L'ouvrier, il en a marre. Divorce was suddenly the rage. And I remember when, I think we just got married and we had this horrible flat, like on the 28th floor of some tall block. And we went and said hi to our neighbours. And they were just an ordinary couple with a couple of kids. We sat down, had a glass of wine, and uh, the man of the family was complaining about the times we were living in. And he said, On aime plus sa femme, hop, on divorce. As if it was, and it was a catastrophe, that somehow religious faith had dried up. Political fervour meant nothing. 
and there were these amazing films made by people like Bertrand Blier, uh, Les Valseuses, there was Chabrol, the pessimism in the grandeur. So he was ahead pessim- of his time. Who? This attitude is ahead of its time. You well, can argue. It, in a way, in a way, it was it was so sophisticated. Also, travelling around France then was so scary. There were hordes of young, rootless people from Germany and Holland and Switzerland and everywhere, just kind of cruising for burgers. It is one of the girls most. travel alcohol. Clothes, music, and a sense of sort of not focused sort of political direction, but just fill your boots, man. It was exciting. dead creepy. It was very exciting. It was very exciting. And like, you know, if you sort of landed in Toulouse and you found yourself in the coolest bar in town, it was, it was a ferment, but a kind of bored ferment full of self-loathing and I find the same you, you get to like, I love France and I think it, it, if you were to pick a country of the world to just offer up as a kind of a here check this out you might pick France but also there's something sort of oh, you can kind of see through it a bit can't you there's a, there, there's a sort of a, a thing to France which there's something about France that, I, that you can kind of puncture well, it's punctured itself. I mean, a friend of mine recently won a kind of residency in some beautiful chateau in the southwest, and uh, she's an important painter. And she went there and she said, you know, this the trope of these lovely Zola-esque street markets with carrots and little kind of turnips. And yeah. It's gone. It's yeah. gone. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a, it's gone. The economy can't support it anymore. Little things Every, are crumbling. Yeah, yeah. And she said it was really sad. A very tough to be there on her own. The I don't want to spend too much time on your old man, but he was a character, wasn't he? I mean, is there anything like him? No. I mean, he was a gambler. He was he was one of the greatest painters of the twentieth century. Mm. He was a wise, he incredibly, was kind. yeah. He was kind, as yeah, well, right, yeah. and cared for you. Yes, brought me um, up and mm-hmm. brought you up. What's his legacy as his daughter? Are you proud? Hugely. Yeah. Good. His pictures are raw. He, he captures this the shine he captures of skin and, and and contortion, and you can almost see that. To me, this is just me talking. My, my personal view of his work that you can see the struggle of man in nearly every painting he does. Yeah, I agree with you. No, that's no, that's... no, I know. But what I'm going to state is a preference for a different aspect of his work. I have the most enormous admiration for so many pictures, and choosing a favourite is just desperately impossible. Yes. But there's a painting of me. He, did, he painted me, I think, about 15 or 16 times, mm-hmm. so a lot. But there's a painting of me, it's a small picture, and I'm lying on the floor with my head on my arm like that. I'm in jeans. Mm-hmm. And I think it must have been just a time of loss for me. Maybe my first relationship had broken up. What is lovely about it is that I'm so left alone to be myself in the picture. And what is important for me is I like art that doesn't feel like art. I like poetry that doesn't feel like, hey, here's a poem, blah, blah, blah. It feels so, so deeply and... um, 
easily engage with its subject, that no manipulation is happening. So there are many paintings too, which are like that. And you just sit obediently there. What would be going through your mind? Just thinking about life? or We would always be talking. Always. We'd be, be almost educating you while you were sitting there. Yeah, we'd yeah. talk about poetry and yeah. talk about my habits. He would, he, would, he would sort of like, he was always shaping me and forming me, always. Yeah. He yeah. marched to his own drum. Yeah. And was he, was he, was he, he and he could be difficult at times. Of course. Yeah. Of course, yeah. terribly. Yeah. But when a painting was going wrong, it would be, he would be deeply, deeply distressed and he'd stab himself in the, right. in the thigh with his brushes. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I will read a poem. Yeah, it'll um, be a poem in honour of your father. Okay. The most beautiful bottom in the world. I'm going to read that tonight. The most beautiful bottom in the world. When I admired the photograph in your kitchen, you told me that it was of a statue of a boy famous for having the most beautiful bottom in the world and that the emperor who loved him built a great library in his honour. But the boy with the beautiful bottom died before the library could be built and you can't remember the emperor's name except that he was one of the most distinguished, if not the most distinguished, of all the Roman emperors. You kissed me, I drove away, and all that's left is what you said about the photograph, and me going through a red light on the Bayswater Road, and the shiny touts on Queensway trying to get you to eat in their Lebanese restaurant. Wow. Well, that's great. I have that photograph. Have you? It's by John Reedy. Do you know who was, John? Who was the emperor? Caesar, oh, was it? no, no, no. It's son Hadrian. Uh, it's Adrianus and the, okay. the beautiful boy, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. that Mary Renault wrote right, about, right, you right. know. What happened to you when he died? Was it, it was, I mean, okay. it, no one likes that. You, you, no. you, were, you had a, as a, if I'm right, uh, something that never happens to people, really. You lost your father, mother and stepfather in 16 months. Which yes, that's right. That doesn't happen to many people. No, and still, a horrible word, processing. Anyway, what happened was that uh, my husband and I went to London and many of us, not all of us, were gathered there in the house and I went to see him on his deathbed. Uh, some of us went round the corner to get food and we sat round and ate. And I had, I had booked a little cricket pavilion on the top of a cliff in a place called Ypres where I was expecting 11 people. This little cri cricket pavilion somehow had beds going right up into the rafter, so it slept 11. And I had rented it, and I had 11 students coming. And Roddy Lumsden and I were going to teach a poetry workshop about place, places you've been, places you're going to, places you've left, places you're coming back to. And this was a very special place, um, the sort of place that if you throw your porridge out of the pan the seagulls would pick it up before it landed to the ground <laughs> lovely, and lovely. I was told by everyone you must cancel you must cancel but I bought all the food I paid the rent I spent the fees of my students I needed to do the work and luckily it was sunny like here we went fished we walked we cooked we laughed we danced we did little bits of work. We had short 
sharp bursts of work and then lots of relaxing and walking and talking and um, and then after that I fell apart Would he be proud of you? He would be proud He missed most of this didn't he? Yes um, that Well that... I'll tell you something um, I'll tell you something I had I had once an experience in with uh, psychotherapy where my psychotherapist said he was Argentinian. Your audience is no longer your parents. That's the and, question I didn't want to ask. Yeah. Well, of course. If a parent, if your mummy says, "I'm so proud of you, darling," your dad said that was good. Um, like the times where my father praised me. Um, it was both absolutely wonderful and very, very difficult. You know, there's that bit in A Winter's Tale where Leontes praises Hermione just before he turns on her. And she says, oh, what else am I good at? Praise me again. I need to be praised again. He used to make me feel like that. But I... I I want to be emotionally disciplined enough not to go there much. Do you know what I'm saying? I do. Because if you demand that kind of infantile caress to the point where it's an obsession, yeah. it screws you. Because you're no longer free. Oh, I agree. You give away. You give away your self-esteem. Oh, you, and you have to do it. Mm. And a lot of people ask me that. And that's why I'm giving you the answer I am. Yes. Because, Jesus, you know, my... <laughs> my instinct would be to throw myself into the pond of parental approval. Not for me. Mm. You must stop it. Your audience is no longer your parents. There's people who do that or the opposite, who rebel and go... And, Nor, and uh, Baby's Revenge by Nora Titsoff. Right. <laughs> Nora Titsoff, brilliant. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you was, when is a poem finished? Um, when it exudes something of authority. Good answer. Good answer. That poem you read earlier about the pose and the tree and the... That woman in, in, mm. in Soho had huge, mm. fierce independence to it. Yeah. yeah, when it has, when it convinces. Do you sometimes tinker around the edges? And, and uh, is it possible to make them worse by tinkering? I remember going to. I was I was in um, Oslo and I went to the Edvard Munch Museum, and apparently he had, had when he died, he had thousands of paintings. Mm-hmm. He could. He had this sort of the yips of finish. He couldn't finish them. Mm-hmm. But he, he kept. No, it's not really. Mm. Yeah. People had to literally come and just take them off the yes. on the wall. Yes. And I've heard poets have some poets have that issue as well. I don't. I I I have this thing where I always try and say to myself that what I write, make sure the next thing you write, if it's of some import, is better than the last thing in your mind. Yeah, and I yeah. think that's been a good, good, good yeah. way. Well, um, I have a very good friend, Rachel Boast. She's... Nothing to brag about. 
Uh, she's a marvellous writer she's a marvellous scholar as well and she's just finished a major project on W.S. Graham uh, which I contributed to and I was really proud to do that and we meet a lot and we talk a lot and we send each other each other's work she has a magnificent instinct for a comma for a reversal for a capitalization or a loss of a capitalization for a removal of speech marks for a con- condensation so you know and there's no guarantee of anything so of course a poem can be ruined by a this or a that or i've been writing a lot of really long poems i mean really long and you know you get terribly wedded to a particular thing and if you have the guts Take it out. Take it out. Throw it away. Suddenly. Because, you you know, you... you I, I, I went to a talk. Poor Muldoon. Poor Muldoon. Oh, God, what a God. Anyway, he was, um, he was giving a talk that I went to hear, and he said, when he writes poems, and he wanted us to get what he was saying, he said, I don't know what I'm doing. And he said, I want you to understand I really don't know what I'm doing. Well, I don't either. Yeah. And yeah. I also have a problem with the erudition of someone like, you've done a degree in English literature, you know other poets, you know poetry, you do poetry classes, you teach poets, you see poets, you know a good po- poem from a bad poem. I write stuff, put it down. I don't have a degree in literature, I never went to college, I don't know what poetry really is. David Harson started talking about solipsisms and all this stuff, I don't even know what that is. Yeah. And so I feel a fraud not a Freud, a fraud. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Because I yeah. don't feel worthy of being, I can, I can, I can say I'm a writer. Yes, right? yes. I can write, I, I, I don't even use flash, I, I don't even use poetry, I say I write flash fiction. Yes, I'm afraid yes. to say that I'm a poet. Yes, you know? yes, yes. And like I've never read, yes. I've never read my poetry on my podcast. Oh, or, well, let's hear one then. Come on. Uh, Man up, as they say. <laughs> um, yeah, okay, I will read one. Yeah. I mean, I, I again, I think also the confidence with which you read your poetry is that thing that you talked about of the poem having legs yeah. and you being brave enough to say this is what I Anyway, this is my this, this is Okay. This is I have a poetry collection called um, Here Lies You and I. Okay. This is the closing piece, the last poem in it which explains and it's this, there's rhyming in here and stuff like that, which, which you probably don't like, but anyway. No, I love rhyme. Okay, well, this is called When We Die. What will happen to us when we die, you and I? A world growing ever colder grows now darker without you. Another generation coming through, none of them recalling you and I. What will happen to us when we die, you and I? Will we be together staring upwards to the sky? holding hands and thinking silently about all that just went by. Was this mere fleeting moment a step and nothing more? Will we ever meet again, perhaps, on some far distant shore, you and I? What will happen to us when we die, you and I? Will choirs of little cherubs come and sing at our goodbye? Will people say nice things about us? Will they cry? The folks we leave behind move on without us by and by down the ever-rolling treadmill till their time has come to die like you and I. What will happen to us when we die, you and I? The clouds roll past, the trees grow tall, the rocks stand fast, a planet sailing on through darkness, now just dust among the stars, you and I. 
What will happen to us when we die, you and I? Will I ever get to see the sparkling firework in your eye? A reflection of the beauty of a world that passed me by. Laughing under pressure, making light of every sigh, you and I. What will happen to us when we die, you and I? A vast and roaring chasm, screaming lonely, screaming why? Begging for a second chance, now that end is nigh. How might we grasp it, you and I? What will happen to us when we die, you and I? Will I regret the mom and apple pie? Shuttered curtains ever present on this guy. A man too afraid to even try for you and I. What will happen to us when we die, you and I? When fire consumes and ashes blow across some sheep-strewn mountainside. No elegies or statues. Here lies you and I. I love it. I love it. Thank you. Pam. Yeah, That's... it's yeah, it's, it's got a lovely ballad. Yeah, um, I, don't, I, yeah. I, I find it weird reading poetry yeah. to you. I, I, I can see that with an extraordinary guitar backing. A beautiful, uh, romantic riff mm. in counterpoint. To it, I think I love it. Thank I think you. it's thank, thank you. I'm going home now. <laughs> I have no other shot. Yeah, yeah. No. Let's finish uh, our chat. I, 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 what I liked about our chat was there was no real structure to it, and I get mm-hmm. I, I liked the way you just we, we went off. Yeah, like we were yeah. like two horses in a field running mm-hmm. around. Let's bring it home with maybe some of your new poems. Yeah, one of your new poems, yeah, or two okay. of your new poems, or whatever you want okay. to read. My forthcoming collection. Yes, called The Levite and the Concubine, which is out next the year. The Levite and the Concubine. Yeah. I'm going to read a, a new poem, and I'm also going to read a poem translated from the French, uh, a poet, uh, Jacques Tournay, who died in on the 6th of February of this year. I'll read it in French. It was a great friend of mine. Okay. And I'll read that first. But I'll read it in French first. Le nom, le nom gravé Un arpège de piano en sourdine Dans une chambre au debout du couloir Prélude d'automne La clarté du jour se condense Elle a un jaune d'amadou Les ombres se promènent toutes seules C'est-à-dire sans forme humaine Qui les suit ou qui les précède Chaque chose semble investie d'une raison précise. L'air sera bientôt fourmillon d'attente. La lune d'octobre se laisse pousser la barbe afin d'avoir les joues au chaud. Je reprendrai mes visites au cimetière. Je répandrai mes pensées sur l'humus refroidi. Pour l'occasion, je me suis offert un complet marron. Autant être bien vêtu devant ceux qui ne le sont plus. Si la brume ne m'obstrue pas la gorge, à mes voix je chanterai un somme de David. J'en, sois, j'en choisirai un de rassurant pour tous, moi inclus. Mieux, j'inventerai mes propres versets sur l'infime que la vie nous apporte et suffit néanmoins à la remplir. En partant, je saluerai la compagnie, les miens aussi que les inconnus, eux dont j'ai croisé cent de fois le nom gravé dans la pierre ou le bois, qu'ils en sont devenus presque des amis. Un ou deux amours inoffensifs me divertiront de ceux qui n'auraient pas la surface du cœur, plus fragile quand l'hiver se présente. J'essaierai d'écrire un livre et en lire cent. Je renaîtrai au monde le printemps venu, déposer en offrande à mes pieds, 
j'aurai l'intérieur du crâne tapissé d'une mousse verdoyante, me mettrai en route vers un pays précieux, bienvenu, comme un raisin sec dans la chair d'une galette. The name engraved. Muffled piano scales announcing autumn reach me from a room at the end of the passage. Daylight condenses with a tinge of sulphur. Shadows walk around on their own, that is, with no human form in front or behind. Each object seems infused with its precise purpose. A swarm of imminences is coming. The October moon is growing a beard to warm its cheeks. I'll go back to my cemetery walks. I'll scatter my thoughts on the chilled earth. I've ordered myself a brown suit for the occasion. I might as well be properly attired among those that aren't. If the fog does not choke me, I'll chant one of the Psalms of David under my breath to reassure everyone, myself included. Better still, I'll write something of my own on all the minutiae of life that paradoxically suffice to fill it. On leaving... I'll wave to the company, my people and those unknown to me, those whose names engraved on stone or wood I've passed a hundred times and who have become almost my friends. I'll amuse myself with signs of casual liaisons between those who did not prize the heart too much, now more fragile as winter approaches. I'll write a book and read a hundred. My rebirth will take place in spring, set down as a gift at my feet. The inside of my skull will be carpeted with a moss of luxuriant green. I'll set out on the road to a cherished country, where I'll be welcomed like a raisin found inside a galette. How hard was that to translate for you? Really hard. It actually... I don't know French as well as you. I know a little bit of French, but I can feel the metre and the... You've captured the same beat as you had in the French version beautifully. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. We'll, we'll close with one of your own. Okay. This is from your new collection. Yeah. Now, um, <laughs> in later life, yeah. I, I do a lot of church visiting. Okay. Are you I, religious? Who cannot be, in a sense? I cannot be religious. I can't, I can't not be. A lot of Irish people and not be at the moment, given what happened. No, no, I, I can't not be. You can't not be, okay. I, uh, is it for Solas? Sorry? Is it for Solas? Is it for... Is it for the... the, the uh, no, it's the power of it. Mm. It's, you know, if you're born out of a... <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of years. Also, there's that sense of giving up saying, I'll not do this. I don't want to not do things. Yeah. I want to do things. But how does that play to religion? Well, you go inside a church. And oh, okay. Well, of course. You I mean, go inside yes. a church and you see and you see these pews and you see the engravings, and you understand that at an earlier time, religious belief was occupied the most enormous space in consciousness. And in daily, the practice of daily life. And although you, me, I don't necessarily have it, I find that 
studying and observing the artefacts produced by minds whose consciousness was so greatly taken up with religion gives me religious feeling. That's how. It's a good answer. What would you say to your younger self, the girl you talked about who was uncertain and unsure and and, and artistic? Um, I'd say, come in, come in. I, I remember my mother was a devout Catholic. She came, you know, there was a strange movement in the 20s and 30s in Britain where masses of people suddenly converted to Catholicism. I don't know quite what it was, but it must have been to do with the war. Um, but many, many um, the British families became Catholic. And I had a great aunt, Lorna, who became like a ferocious Catholic and insisted that the whole family became Catholic. And so although I had no religious upbringing, when I used to go to France with my mother, who was an old-fashioned Francophile, and we used to go into Chartres, and she, I saw her fingers dip into the holy water, and she would make the sign of the cross. Yeah. And the way the holy water always smells holy, and then she would go and take candles and light them for her mother and the people that she'd lost and loved. And I used to watch this. I went out now, I go into churches and I I cry actually. (laughs) Now, I'm fascinated with stories of the Reformation and I was with my daughter earlier last year and we went to an extraordinary church in Ufford, a village outside Woodbridge. She there were particular carvings she wanted me to see. And um this is my poem. Lines composed on a carved pew end. 21st of August, 1644, was a hot day, and Basha Dowsing, Cromwell's chief iconoclast, beheld, as I do now, the cover of the Willoughby's baptismal font, pinnacles, crockets, finials, rising to the rafters like a pope's triple crown, topped with a gilded pelican, plucking at her breast for blood to feed her young, and with Trimley, Brightwell and Levington smashed earlier that day, he told his men to spare it from the axe. He must have overlooked this carving of a woman, hands folded in prayer over a swollen belly, tilted a little back for balance, kneeling in her worldliness of linen fold, butterfly coif and wide-spanned collar, flattering her fineness among the dog's grotesques and bearded wood-woses. What was she praying for? A safe birth? A boy that has his father's eyes and lives her own sweet neck? Thank you for being on a fight with Shawnee B. Look after yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, really enjoyed that. <laughs>